Peter Hill Explains, where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about Thomas Huxley, a Wikipedia reading episode two. And unfortunately, as things happen, you get interrupted and you have to break things up. But this is why I have multiple episodes. So uh, he's a self-made man. Um, this uh, classic thing, I think he's the... Dad was a teacher. His mum died. His dad was a teacher, uh, and they they uh, had to shut the school. And then he was uh, uh, self-educated, basically, and and determined to be able to teach himself. And auto teaching came up with the idea of agnostic to describe the fact of being able to cut through religious arguments. So agnostic is someone who says, "Well, okay, let's." talk about other things besides religion, like rational things, which I can actually do something about. That's his agnostic. Now, he uh, sort of come, came up, it's rather interesting, he, there's, besides the very front part of England, which produces the most high-level stuff, there's functional England, which produces low-level consumable stuff. So, the, the top level is, takes all the credit, the bottom level does all the work, and so he's in that middle level going to anatomy school, um, and uh, he uses that um, uh, to get on board the rattlesnake as a naturalist and starts pulling up all invertebrates, which is sort of sponges and jellyfish and look type of stuff, begins classifying them, and uh, he um, uh, produced it here. I'm just going to use my glasses here, because the light's fading a bit, and it's, if you've got older, you need glasses, oh that's much better um, so Huxley's paper on the anatomy and affinities of the family of Medusae was published in 1849 in the Royal Society in its philosophical transitions he united the uh, um, the hydroid and student polyps with Medusae to form a class which he subsequently gave the hydroza the connection he made was that all members of the class consisted of two cell layers enclosing a central cavity or a stomach. So, mm. this is characteristic of a farm now called Sinatra. Now, I think he did something, he found that hair had a hair layer, so it's being able to see this, so he found a sheath around a hair, however that works, I don't know, it's called Huxley. Thing. He compared this feature of serous and mucous structures of embryos of higher animals. Oh, isn't that incredible? So he's saying that this fundamental feature of jellyfish is the fundamental feature of inside animals, i.e. that you are born as fish, basically. And when at last he got to the giant, a grant from the Royal Society for printing over the plates, Huxley was able to summarise the work in Oceana Hodrasa, published by Ray Society. I wonder what the Ray Society is. And here various birds of feet. I can see from these feet there it's pigeons. The value of Huxley's work uh, was recognised and on returning to England in 1850 he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society. The following year at the age of 26 he not only received a Royal Society medal but was also elected to the council. So he obviously has a, um, a presence which you can imagine someone who's working hard through all the degrees, not getting the social 
attitude, sort of waiting for their turn on the voyage, doing all these things. You can see how he's worked, formed relationships with people. He's a very uh, relations person. Um, he met Joseph Dalton Hooker and John Tyndall, who re- remained his lifelong friends. The Admiral, see, this is, I think this is the main thing. He's a good friend. The Admiral retained him as a nominal assistant surgeon, so he might work on specimens he collected at the observation and made the voyage of the rattlesnake. He solved the problem of the appendicula, whose place in the animal kingdom, Johannes Peter Muller, had found himself wholly unable to assign. It, uh, it and the Ascidians are both, as Huxley showed, truncates, uh, tunicates, today regarded as a group of vertebrates in the phylum Caudata. Ah, so these are almost spinal cords. Caudata means you've got a spinal cord, so there's something called tunicates. Mm. Other papers on the morphology of cephalopods and brachiopods and rotifers are also noteworthy. Rattlesnake's official naturalist, John McGillivray, did some work on botany and proved surprisingly good at note-taking uh, at uh, Australian Aboriginal language. He's wrote up the voyage uh, in the standard Victorian two-volume format. Isn't that amazing? Voyage is in two volumes. Isn't that strange? So he went out to Australia and found things. Later life. Huxley effectively resigned from the Navy by refusing to return to active service and, in July 1954, became Professor of Natural History at the Royal School of Mines at the National uh, Naturalist of the British Geological Survey the following year. In addition, he was a Fullerian Professor at the Royal Institution at 55 to 58 and 65 to 67. Hunterian Professor at the College of Surgeons. These are a visiting professor. So he was just a networker par excellence, isn't he? Just amazing to see. President of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. So that's really important. So that's the one that uh, uh, started off with the word, they came up with scientists as well. So that's President of the Quecket Microscopical Club, President of the Royal Society, Inspector of Fisheries, President of the Marine Biology Association. He's the sort of thing that you have as a president. And we have certain people like that. They just look the part. And I think his sideburns structure would have done it. In 31 years during which Huxley occupied the chair of Natural History at the Royal School of Mines, included work on vertebrate paleontology and many projects to advance the place of science in British life. Huxley retired in 1885 after a bout of depressive illness which started in 84. He resigned his presence from the Royal Society mid-term, the inspectorship of fisheries, his chair, as soon as he uh, decently could, he took six months leave. His pension was fairly handsome at £1,200 a year. So he got a repressive illness. So this is something inside. We don't understand why did someone who's so personable become depressed. And I could imagine there might be something in the society. In 1890, he moved from London to Eastbourne, where he edited nine volumes of his collected essays. In 1894, he heard of Eugene Dubois' discovery in Java of the remains of Picarus erectus, almost, uh, also known as Homo erectus. Finally, in 1895, he died of a heart attack <laughs> of a contracting influenza and pneumonia. He was buried in North Island at St. Marybone. This family plot has been purchased upon the death of his beloved eldest son, Noel, who died of scarlet fever in 1860. So, 
There's a couple of things. Scarlet fever and the Victorian things getting into him. His wife, Henrietta Ann Heatherborn, son and son Noel, also buried there. No invitations were sent out, but 200 people turned up to the ceremony. They include Joseph Dalton Hooker, Henry Flower, Foster, Edwin Lancaster, Joseph Lister, and apparently Henry James. What, um, I, I suppose, one of the things is you can have, you know, going for the funerals, well, you, this, but this, you can have the lowest cost, it's a non-attendance funeral. So when you die, they pick you up, you're just taken away, no particular time, they just turn up, take you away, gone. And when you're cremated, they just sent a text, a little SMS, gone. SMS, what is a beautiful idea. Uh, Huxley and his wife had five daughters and three sons. Wow. One died in 1940, 46 and 41. Uh, yeah. So there's Noel, who died age three. Most, uh, uh, Marianne, who married Artis, and she lived a relatively short life of um, uh, 28 years. Okay, public duties and awards. From 1870 onwards, Huxley was, uh, to some extent, drawn away from scientific research by the claims of public duty. He served on eight royal commissions. It's like he's, he's, he's the... He's a go-to celebrity person. And from 1862 to 1884, from 1871 to 1880, he was the Secretary of the Royal Society, uh, and then he was the President. He was President of the Geological Society, 1868 to 70. So he's the um, the thing. In 1870, he was President of the British Association um, uh, at... um, Liverpool. In the same year, he was elected member of the newly constituted Royal London School Board. So they, they just, he was a, an, is a known name. He was president of the Microscope Club. He was a leading person amongst those who reformed the Royal Society, persuaded government about science, and established scientific education in British schools and universities. Before him, science was mostly a gentleman's occupation. After him, science was a profession. Is that not beautiful? So. Faraday was the plate, and he was the catalyst. What a fantastic, important point. Something really to understand. This is Huxley is really an amazing process. Now, what has gone wrong with science education in Australia? It has become a laughing stock. I just wish I could understand. Somehow, in that process, someone has got in and scrambled the settings. They've gone up to the settings and they've just... It's been a run amok by a madman. He's awarded the highest honours, then opened to British Men of Science. The Royal Society, who had elected him Fellow at 25, awarded him the Royal Medal the next year. Um, and a year before Charles Darwin got his, the same award. He was the youngest biologist to receive such a recognition. Then in later life, he became the Copeland Medal. Then the Darwin Medal in '94. Darwin, they could give the Darwin Medal to Darwin. The so I love giving medals, and I have to say there was a story of um, my father involved in getting a Russian scientist who had a continental plate, you know, tectonic plate research, and he got, got the poor guy a medal, and that was in 1975. 
and the Russians didn't like it at all. Uh, and so he disappeared. So it's one of those amazing things. Geological Society awarded him the Walston Medal. The Linnean Society awarded him the Linnean Medal. They just, how does it happen? There's so many other, uh, there were many other elections and appointments to eminent scientific bodies. These and his many academic awards are listed in Life and Letters. He turned down many other appointments, notably the Linkhead Chair of Zoology in Oxford, the Mastership of the University of College of Oxford. In 1873, the King of Sweden made Huxley, Hooker and Tyndall knights of the Order of the Polar Star. Isn't that fantastic? They could wear the insignia but not use the title in Britain. Huxley collected many honorary memberships in foreign societies, awards honorary doctorates in Britain and Germany. He also became a foreign member of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences. As a recognition of his many public services, he was given a pension by the state and appointed a privy councillor in 1892. So this is someone who is larger than life, has done fantastic work. You know, he, he converted science, you know, science, they've created the scientist, step one, and then science and profession. Despite his many achievements, he was given no award by the British state until later in life. He did better than Darwin, who got no award of any kind from the state. Darwin proposed knighthood was vetoed by the classical advisers, according to, including Wilderford. Perhaps Huxley had commented too often on this dislike of honours, or perhaps his many assaults on the traditional beliefs of organised religion made enemies within the establishment. He got vigorous debates in print uh, with Benjamin Disbrayley, William Everett Goldstone, and Arthur Balfour, the relationship and his relationship with Lord Salisbury was less than tranquil. So he's someone who he says something and he's in the press. So he's able to fight and he, he represents, by actually standing for something, he represents something that the press likes. Huxley uh, was about 30 years evolution's most effective advocate. And for some, Huxley was uh, the premier advocate of science in the 19th century for the whole of the English-speaking world. Though he had many admirers and disciples, his retirement and later death left the British zoology somewhat bereft of leadership. He had directly or indirectly guided the careers and appointments of the next generation, but none of his stature. The loss of Francis Balfour in 1882, climbing the Alps, just after he was appointed chair of Cambridge, was a tragedy. Huxley thought he was the only man who could carry out my work, Dessa Buffer and W. Clifford were the greatest losses in our science in our lifetime. Yeah, this is the entire thing of this uh, idea that science has a man, a man of science. What an amazing person. Vertebrate paleontology. The first half of Huxley's career as a paleontologist is marked by a rather strange predilection for persistent types in which he seemed to argue that evolutionary advancement in the sense of major new groups of animals and plants, was rare and absence in the Phanerozoic. In the same vein, he tended to push the origin of major groups, such as birds and mammals, back to the Paleozoic era, and to claim no uh, other plants uh, have ever gone extinct. Hmm. Much paper has been consumed by historians on the science ruminating on the strange and somewhat unclear idea. Huxley was wrong to pitch the loss of orders um, in the Phalozoic as low as 7%, and he did not estimate the number of new orders which evolved. 
persistent types sat rather uncomfortably next to Darwin's more fluid ideas, despite his intelligence, it took Huxley a surprisingly long time to appreciate some of the implications of the revolution. However, gradually, Huxley moved away from this conservative style of thinking to understand paleontology. Uh, uh, the discipline itself developed. Isn't that just amazing? So he is the connection man. Um, Isn't that the most amazing thing? Huxley's detailed anatomical work was, as always, first-rate and productive. Uh, his work on fossil fish shows his distinctive approach. Whereas pre-Darwin naturalists collected, identified, classified, Huxley worked mainly to reveal the evolutional relationship between groups. The lobed fin fish, such as the colothants and lungfish, have paired appendages whose internal skeletons is attached to the shoulder or pelvis by a single bone the humerus or femur. His interest in fish brought him close to the origin of tetrapods, one of the most important areas of vertebrate paleontology. So tetrapods are four-legged fish. Four-legged animals. Animal, oh, sounds like a New Zealand animals. I had a vowel shift there. The study of fossils, reptiles, led to a demonstrating the fundamental affinity of birds and reptiles, which united under the title of Sauroposia. Isn't that beautiful? His paper on the... I can't... Archaeophetrix uh, and the origin of birds of great interest and still are. Isn't that right? Apart from his interest in persuading the world that man was a primate, he had descended from the same stock as apes. Huxley did little work on mammals, with one exception. On his tour of America, Huxley was shown a remarkable series of fossil horses discovered by O.C. Marsh in Yale's Peabody Museum. The Easterner, Marsh, was America's first professor of paleontology, but also one who'd come west in hostile Indian territory in search of fossils, hunted buffaloes, and met Red Cloud. Oh my god. Funded by his uncle George Peabody, Marsh had made remarkable discoveries. A huge crustaceous aquatic bird called the Hesperanus, the dinosaur footprints, and the kinetic evidence were tripped uh, by themselves. But the horse fossils were really special. After a week with the marshes and his fossils, Huxley wrote excitedly, quote, The collection of fossils is the most wonderful thing I've ever seen. I wonder how his wife felt like that. The collection at the time went from the four-toed forest-dwelling orthohippus uh, of the Eocene through to three-toed species of Methosippus. Um, to the species more like the modern horse, which has actually only got one toe. Which is interesting that... The, the horse actually walks on one toe. The hoof is not... The actual rest of the, the foot is higher up. Um, um, and the teeth change from those of a browser to a grazer. And thus, cha uh, all changes could be explained by a general alteration in habitat. as the forest, uh, from forest to grassland. And it is n uh, now known that this is what did happen over large areas of North America, from the Eocene to the Paleocene. The ultimate causative agent was global temperature reduction. See the Paleocene equivalent thermal maximum. Uh, the modern account of evolution of the horse has many other members, and the overall appearance of the tree descendants is more like uh, a bush than a straight line. Oh, the tree, descendant tree. The horse series so strongly suggested 
that the process was gradual and that the origin of the modern horse lay in North America, not Eurasia. If so, then something must have happened to the horses of North America since none of them were there when the Europeans arrived. The experience of the march was enough for Huxley to give credence to Darwin's gradualism. So it is interesting that he was a very personal person, but he was hooked back into science. He was rooted as a scientist and came out. I, I'm just really impressed with the man. Marsha, Marsha's and Huxley's conclusions were initially quite different. However, Marsh carefully showed Huxley his complete sequence of fossils. As Marsh put it, Huxley then informed me that all this was new to him and that my facts demonstrated the evolution of the horse was beyond question. Isn't that great? If you go back, given beside the coffee table, you know, scientists are great people and they push people aside for facts. It's much more gentle than that. It's just that they can, they're, they're two-faced. Scientists are two-faced. Oh, the great thing, he is two-faced putting things out there. But looking back, he's, he's not, he's not two-faced. He, he is swayed by evidence. So this is someone who's actually swayed by evidence. And I don't know whether, yeah, for me, I've had sort of similar things like this. First time indicated the direct line of descendants and existing animals. With the generosity of a true greatness, he gave up his own opinions in the face of new truth and took my conclusions as the basis of his famous New York lecture on horses. Is that not the way to go? You really have to follow. I mean, if you're a scientist, you can do you can do social stuff, but you have to follow the science and when people lose the science and do politics, you just have to ignore them and put them aside. Darwin's bulldog. Huxley was originally not persuaded on the development theory of evolution, uh, was once called. This was seen in his savage reviews, Robert Chambers' Vestiges of Natural History of Creation. And that's when Huxley, re that, that, that one, frightened Darwin, a book which contained some quite pertinent arguments in favour of evolution. Huxley also rejected Lamarck's theory of transmutation, which is true, on the basis there was insufficient evidence to support it. Uh, all this scepticism was brought together in a lecture of the Royal Institution, which made Darwin anxious enough to set about an effort to change young Huxley's mind. It was the kind of thing Darwin did with honest scientific friends, but must have been some particular intuition about Huxley who from all accounts, uh, a most impressive person, even as a young man. Huxley, therefore, uh, one of a small group who knew about Darwin's ideas about uh, before they were published. A group included uh, Hooker and Lyle. first publication by Darwin of his ideas uh, came when Wallace sent Darwin the famous paper, Natural Selection, which was presented by Lyle and Hooker, the Land Society, along excerpts from Darwin's notebooks, an earlier Darwin letter to Asher de Great. So this is to, to prove... That Darwin came up with the idea first. It's just w what a feeling, and what's a feeling is that there was you had the gentleman scientists and a professional scientist coming in. Huxley's famous response to the idea of natural selection: quote, "How extremely stupid not to have thought of that." However, he never cons uh, conclusively made up his mind about whether natural selection was the main method of evolution though he did admit that the hypothesis was a good working basis. Logically speaking, 
uh, the prior question was whether evolution had taken place at all. It is to this question that much of Darwin's On the Origin of Species was devoted. The publication in 1859 completely convinced Huxley of evolution, and this was no doubt his admiration of Darwin's way of amassing and using evidence that formed the basis to support Darwin in the debates to support of the publication of the book, which is really um, someone who, he, like he was ultimate in politics, but essentially he did his science. Now, I wonder whether this is 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 uh, our real scientists self-taught. That's a big question. Are real scientists self-taught? Is can you actually make a scientist? Because if you make someone, is it is, is it impossible to make a per? Is like can can you actually educate a person? You can well educate is build up. Can you actually create program a person or educate them? Okay, support started with the anonymous favourable review of the origin in the Times um, and continued with articles at several periodicals and the lecture of the Royal Institution in 1860. At the same time, Richard Owen, whilst writing an extremely hostile anonymous review of the origin in the Edinburgh Review, also primed Samuel Wilberforce, who wrote in the Quarterly Review, writing to 17,000 words. The authorship of this letter review was not known for sure until Wilberforce's son wrote his biography. Mm. It could also be said that just as Darwin groomed Huxley, Owen groomed Wilberforce. And b both the proxies for public battles. Isn't that ba beautiful? Wilberforce is such... Uh, Owen's such a jerk. Owen's a real jerk. Wilberforce is a klutz. Um, and battles on behalf of their principles as, as much as themselves. Though we do not know what exact words of the, the Oxford debate, we do know that Huxley thought, uh, thought uh, of the review in the quarterly. Since Lord Burham assailed Dr. Young, the world has no such specimen of insolence of a shallow pretender to the master of science as a remarkable production, in which one of the most exact of observers, most cautious of reasoners, and most candid of expositors of this or any other age has held up scorn held up to scorn as isn't this beautiful? As a fight as a flighty person who endeavours to prop up his utterly rotten fabric of guess and speculation and whose mode of dealing with nature is reprobated as utterly dishonourable to natural science. Isn't that completely... Is, well, I don't know. It's almost 60 minutes. Here's another thing. I confine my retrospect to the reception of The Origin of Species to... Uh, a twelve month and or thereabouts from the time of its publication, I do not recollect anything quite so foolish and anomaly as the quarterly review article. Huxley said, "I am Darwin's bulldog." While the second half of Darwin's life, he was lived mainly within his family. The younger competitive Huxley operated mainly out uh, out in the world at large. A letter from Huxley to Ernest Haeckel. Haeckel states, the dogs have been snapping at Darwin's heels uh, too much of late. At Oxford and Cambridge University's bulldog, as uh, was and still as a student slang for university policemen, whose job was to corral errant students and maintain order and moral rectitude. So that's beautiful. 
the debate with Wilberforce. Famously, Huxley responded to Wilberforce in the debate at the World, uh, British Association meeting on Saturday the 30th of June 1860 in Oxford University Museum. Huxley's presence there has been encouraged on the previous evening when he met Robert Chambers, the Scottish publisher and the authors of Vestiges, who was walking the streets of Oxford in a desperate state and begged for assistance. The debate followed the presentation of a paper by William Draper and was chaired by Darwin's former botany tutor, John Stephen Henslow. Darwin's theory was opposed by Lord Bishop of um, Oxford, Samuel Wilberforce, and who supporting Darwin included Huxley and their mutual friends Hooker and Lubbock. The platform featured, uh, featured Broody, Professor uh, Beale, and Robert Fitzroy, who had been captain of the Beagle during Darwin's voyage and spoke against. Fitzroy spoke against fucking Darwin. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Wilberforce had a track record against evolution as far back as the previous Oxford BA meeting in 1847. My God, they don't have too many meetings. When he took Chambers' vestiges uh, for, uh, for the more challenging task of opposing the origin, uh, the implication that man descended from apes had been assiduously coached by Richard Owen. Owen stayed... Now, Owen, I really wish I should know about Richard Owen, stayed with him the night before the debate. On the day, Wilberforce repeated some of the arguments from the quarterly review argument written but not yet published. Then ventured uh, onto slippery ground. His famous jibe at Huxley as to whether Huxley was descended from an ape on his mother's side or father's side was probably unplanned, and certainly on Myers. Huxley's reply was to the fact that he would rather be descended from an ape than a man who misused the great talents of uh, uh, to suppress debate. An exact wording is not certain, and is widely recounted in pamphlets and a spoof play. So. Uh, in essence, I almost have the same feeling of, you know, teachers, I would rather you talk the truth than convenient fiction, you know, or, you know, do it. Uh, the letters of Alfred Newton include one to his brother giving an eyewitness account of the debate, written less than a month afterwards. Other eyewitnesses, with one or two exceptions, Hooker especially thought he had made the best points, gave similar accounts at varying dates after the event. The general view was, and still is, that Huxley got much better of the exchange with Wilberforce himself, uh, uh, thought that he had done quite well. In the absence of abatement reports, different perceptions are difficult to judge fairly. Huxley wrote a detailed account for Darwin, a letter uh, which does not survive, however. A letter to his friend Frederick Daniel Daster does survive with an account just three months after the event. Isn't that beautiful? I just, I'm really excited by it. I didn't, I really did not know that Huxley is such a fantastic, well, I admire him. I think true scientists are born and if you try and make, if you make a scientist with incompetent artisans, you can make a sports car with fools for mechanics and you get a lemon. That's what I have to say. Uh, one effect of the debate was increasingly huge Huxley's... Uh, it was increasing hugely Huxley's visibility amongst the educated people. Although the account in the newspapers and periodics, another consequence was to alert him to the importance of public debate, a lesson he never forgot. The third effect was to serve at a notice to Darwin's idea could not be easily dismissed. 
On the contrary, they would be vigorously defended against orthodox authority. The fourth effect was to promote professionalism in science, which implied the need for scientific education. Isn't that absolutely good? And I really think Australia is lacking punchy, we, we are really wimpy scientists and we, just, we have our, our, um, our budgets cut, our things cut and we, we really need to stand up for ourselves. We can't rely on the Labour Party or, or left-wing parties to say, oh, it's really hurting. It's sort of like, like someone um, has been kicked in the gutter and they're groaning and so that it's in the dark and so they can they just listen to where the groan is and where the blood is coming and they just tr follow it up. Awful. Okay. The fifth consequence was indirect will of force had uh, as Wilford had feared, a defence of evolution did undermine literal belief in the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis. Many liberal clergy at the meeting were quite pleased at the outcome of the debate. They were supporters, perhaps, of the controversial essay and reviews. And thus, both sides of science and on, uh, and one and on the side of religion, both on the side of science and religion, the debate was important at the outcome's significance. Huxley and Wilberforce remained on courteous terms after debate and able to work together on projects such as the Metropolitan Board of Education says something about both men, whereas Huxley and Owen were never reconciled. Uh, man's place in nature. Now, it's a light to be go, so I'll be able, maybe be able to read. I want to go down to Goethe. I'll read this next Paris. For nearly a decade, his work was directed mainly to the relationship of man and apes. This led him directly to clash with Richard Owen, a man wildly disliked for his behaviour while also being admired for his capability. The struggle was to culminate in some severe defeats for Owen. Huxley's Kuhnian lecture, delivered before the Royal Society in 58, the theory of vertebrate skull, was uh, the start. In this, he rejected Owen's theory that the bones of the skull and the spine were homologous, in the opinion previously held by Goethe and Lawrence Cohen. Thanks a lot for listening. I'll see if I'll have to take this up after. Another podcast, another story comes to a close. It's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you. May you discover truly amazing things, understand them and tell others. Thanks for listening.